G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. If you've been around church for a while, there is a likelihood you've heard of our special guest today. You may even own one of his books. His best-known book outlines five general ways that romantic partners express and experience love, which he calls love languages. Now, it's not an exaggeration to say that millions have been transformed by the best-selling book written by Dr. Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. The book that started it all has sold 13 million copies. He's been on the New York Times bestsellers list continuously since 2007. But as influential as Gary Chapman has been, the surprising thing is, he says he's just a regular guy, not much different than you and me. In his latest book, he tells his own story in Life Lessons and Love Languages. His new book offers a glimpse of Gary's life, from his upbringing in a small town in the United States to becoming a best-selling author and international speaker. And he's joining us live from the United States. A special welcome along to 2020 to Dr. Gary Chapman. Gary, welcome. Well, thank you, Neil. It's good to be with you. And Gary, thanks for staying back at the office later because we're talking to you and around 8.30 your time in the evening. Yes, (laughs) and it's morning for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Hey, Gary, this new book is, uh, you know, people uh, assume that you had it all together and you've written a bestseller and just about everybody's heard of the five love languages. And uh, there's an assumption that you've had it all together through your whole life and did everything right. Uh, There's a confession or two in this new book or there's some challenging things that you're uncovering. What are your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. You know, I think uh, when you reflect on your life and the journey you've had with God, If you're going to help other people, you have to be honest about your own struggles, you know, things you went through. And so I share those in my book because I really believe that God intends for us to learn through our struggles. Uh, You know, uh, as I describe in the book, my wife and I, for example, had lots of struggles in our marriage in the early years. And, And probably if we had not gone through that, I would not have gone into counseling because I would have I would have not had empathy for people. But when you've been there. And you have the feeling, you know, this is not working. I mean, I I don't know what's happening here, but it's not working. And we don't even like each other anymore. And, you know, if I hadn't gone through that that period of struggle in my life, uh, I would not have had empathy for people. But when they sit in my office and say, we have no hope for our marriage, I can identify with that, you know. And I say, I can understand that, you know. So why don't you go on my hope? Because I have hope for you. You know, so just for a while, let's go on my hope. Uh, so learning to meet people where they are and having empathy for where they are and also realizing that being a Christian does not exempt us from having, having marital struggles. So, you know, uh, God uses all the things that happen in our lives, both to make us 
and then to use that in our efforts to help others. Well, that first edition came out somewhere around 30 years ago now, and so we should assume that in those times, as you say, not everything was great in your own marriage, and there are different ways we might be able to talk about that. You know, you can be having a rough time, or your marriage can be on the rocks, things can be about to explode. You might like to let us in on where you were at with that, but certainly at a point where you said, I need to go and prepare And if you were moving into this idea of marriage counselling, then you were going on your own experiences. Where was your marriage at at that time? Well, when I uh, got to doing marriage counselling, we had been together a long time and we had made a real tremendous change in our relationship uh, because I never intended to write books either, just as I never intended to be a (laughs) counsellor. That's why why the subtitle of this book is What I Learned on My unexpected journey. Uh, What I discovered, however, when I got to working in the church, that uh, people were really struggling with marriage and family. And since we had been through that, I had empathy for that and so started teaching classes on it. And then the people who would come to the classes would want to talk individually. So I kind of got pushed into counseling. It wasn't my intention to get into that, but it became a major part of my ministry. And so, uh, but I'll tell you the real changing part and the real changing point in our marriage uh, I remember I, I, we two weeks after we got married, I enrolled in seminary to study to be a pastor. And within six months, I had lost all those positive feelings I had for her. And I had a lot of negative feelings. And we spent a lot of time arguing and saying hateful things to each other. And I was beginning to say to myself, there is no way that I can get up and preach hope to people and be this miserable in my marriage. And I remember, I don't know, maybe a year or so into our marriage, I just said to God, Lord, I I do not know what to do. I've done everything I know to do. It's not getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse, and I don't know what to do. And as soon as I said that, Neil, there came to my mind a visual image of Jesus on his knees washing the feet of his disciples. And I just heard God say to me, that's the problem in your marriage. You do not have the attitude of Christ toward your wife. And it, hit me, it hit me like a ton of bricks uh, because I knew that was not my attitude. You know, my attitude was something like this. Look, I know how to have a good marriage. If you listen to me, we'll have one. You know, <laughs> She wouldn't listen to me. And I blamed her. But that day I got a different message. And I said, Lord, forgive me. With all of my study in theology, I've missed the whole point. I said, please give me the attitude of Christ toward my wife. In retrospect, it's the greatest prayer I ever prayed about my marriage because God changed my heart and gave me a desire to serve my wife. And I'll tell you what made it practical for me. When I was willing to ask these three questions, my marriage began to change. They're simple questions. What can I do to help you? Question number two. How can I make your life easier? Question number three, how can I be a better husband? And when I was willing to ask those questions, my wife was willing to give me answers. Mm -hmm, She told me. (laughs) Now, looking back on it, of course, I knew nothing about love languages in those days, but looking back on it, her answers were telling me how to love her. She was telling me her love language. And when I started responding to those things, it didn't happen overnight, but within three months, my wife started asking me those three questions. What can I do to help you? How can I make your life easier? How can I be a better wife? 
And then our marriage really took off because here I am serving her in every way that I can. She's doing the same for me. And I believe that is what God intended for marriage. God never ordained marriage to make us miserable. God ordained marriage because he knows that two are better than one. And when we learn how to do it God's way and each serve the other, and in today's language, in my language, I would say learn each other's love language and speak it on a regular basis, then you can accomplish, not only have a good marriage, but you can accomplish the things that God has for you in your life. And that really brings substance, doesn't it, to this concept that we understand, and especially from Ephesians chapter 5, the idea of submitting to one another. It's not a submission one way. There's a submission one to the other. And uh, you're saying that submission happens when you ask questions about how I can serve you better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, let's face it. I know that people have had good marriages long before I wrote the book on the love languages, okay? But I think what happened is they stumbled across (laughs) or they'd asked questions and they discovered what makes their spouse feel loved and they chose to respond. It starts with an attitude, you know, that I want to enrich your life. I'm not here to force anything on you. I'm not here to make you like me. I'm not here to tell you that you ought to do this for me. I'm here to enrich your life. And, you know, if I can just find out how to do that, that's what I want to do. So we choose our attitude. We don't choose our feelings. You know, the in love experience is an emotional experience. You don't get up one day and think, I'll fall in love today. You know, <laughs> no. you meet someone, something about the way they look, the way they talk, the way they emote, that just gives you a positive emotional feeling. It draws you to them. And when that happens going both ways, we say, we're in love. And it doesn't take a whole lot of work when you're in that stage of romantic love. But research indicates that that stage of romantic love has about a two-year lifespan, and we come down on that high. Then we have to learn how to communicate love in a meaningful way to the other person, and that's what makes all the difference. Well, I'm asking our listeners today, Gary, to respond if they so desire, on our Facebook question. The 2020 question asks today, do you think romantic relationships improve when each one knows their love language? And I've listed those on the Facebook question for listeners to respond because, uh, you know, in brief, uh, the first one, acts of service. The second one, gift giving. The third one, physical touch the fourth one, quality time, or the fifth one, words of affirmation. So listeners can find that question at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. But there's five love languages that you identify there. Let's put you in the picture here, Gary. Uh, What's your love language? And perhaps if if you're able to let us in on what your wife's love language is so we can understand how that works. Sure. My love language is words of affirmation. Now, I didn't know that when I got married, but I did know that when people gave me affirming words, I felt appreciated. So what did I do by nature when I got married? I gave my wife in the early weeks, you know, words of affirmation. I would tell her how nice she looked, how much I appreciate what she did. And one night she said to me, you keep on saying, I love you. I love you. If you love me, why don't you help me? (laughs) Because her love language is acts of service, doing things for her. Remember the old saying, 
Actions speak louder than words. If this is your love language, actions will speak louder than words. And I wasn't doing anything to help her around the house or around our apartment because I was in graduate school. And, you know, I'm going to school, working part-time, and she's working. And, you know, she, she's saying to me, if you really love me, you'd be helping me with things around the apartment here. And so, yeah, I was just blown out of the saddle because I was serious. I mean, I loved her, you know, but I was giving her words of affirmation. I was loving her in the way I wanted to be loved rather than in the way she needed to be loved. And uh, even though we didn't call it love language in those days, it made a huge difference whenever I started doing things around the house to help her. And your theory is here that while there's a primary love language that we all have, uh, there's also a secondary one. So if you're going through the list of five, uh, one will stand out and there'll be a secondary one. How important is it to recognize perhaps some of these love languages on a, on a scale of priority? Well, I think it is important. And sometimes number one and number two will be very, very close. In fact, I've had people say, you know, two of those are just equal for me. I said, fine, we'll call you bilingual. You know, either one of those is going to be meaningful to you in a deep way. And it's going to meet that need for love. But most of us do have a primary. The secondary is a little less important. And then the other three fall in line under that. Now, let's face it. We can receive love in all five languages. And most of us are not going to turn away from any one of those five. But if we don't get our primary love language... We will not feel loved, even though the person is speaking some of the other languages. You know, I was speaking one of the languages, words of affirmation. It just wasn't the one that really spoke to her heart. So learning the primary and the secondary, really, really important. And, and learning the least important, because the least important is not speaking very loudly to them. It's okay. I mean, they'll accept it, but it's not speaking very loudly to them that you really do love them. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Our special guest is Dr. Gary Chapman. He is the best-selling author of the book called The Five Love Languages. He's got a new book out called in it's called Life Lessons and Love Languages. Gary, if we're talking about the life lessons, I imagine these are the life lessons you were learning as those five love languages came to the fore. But I imagine it doesn't start just when you have a fall-in-love romantic relationship. These sorts of love languages clearly are coming through in our developmental years, from our young years, in our own family experience. Uh, give us some insights here into uh, to which one uh, that, uh, that you'd like to talk about out of those five and, and where those beginnings were. Well, you know, let me talk just a little bit about childhood because when I'm talking to parents, I like to say, the question is not, do you love your children? The question is, do your children feel loved? Because we know that when a child grows up in a home where they do not feel loved by their parents, that child is going to have a tremendous disadvantage in life. Emotionally, socially, relationally, they're going to struggle. Because one of our basic needs as humans is the need to feel loved by the significant people in our lives. And no one's more significant in the life of a child than the parents. And so if they feel loved by the parents, it's a huge asset for them because it gives them a sense of security, a sense of worth. And fortunately, I grew up in a home where my mom and dad did express love to me. I didn't know anything about love languages, nor did they. 
but uh, they spoke words of affirmation to me, which is my primary language, but they also spoke the others. And I say when it comes to children, you don't just speak the primary love language. You speak all five of them, but you give heavy doses of the primary because we want the child to learn how to receive love and give love in all five languages. That's the healthiest adult. Most of us did not receive all five of these growing up. So when we get to be adults, we have to learn some of these. But the good news is you can learn these as an adult, even if you didn't receive them as a child. Uh, So I think that's important. Another lesson that I learned looking back on my childhood is the value of structure in the life of a child. I lived in a small town, and I went to the same school all uh, 12 years of school and caught the bus at the bus stop every morning. But uh, the, the pattern was go to school in the morning, the afternoon, come home, do your homework in the spring and fall, work in the garden, helping my father. After dinner, my sister and I took turns washing dishes. There was a time for us to read. Of course, computers were not around when I was little. <laughs> and we were we were allowed to listen to two radio programs, uh, you know, that one of them was news and one of them was a comedy type type program. So, but I think a child having structure also feels secure in life. And sometimes parents who are not structured themselves fail to recognize the value of structure in the life of a child. But children thrive on structure. So uh, that's another word I would give to, to parents as well. There was a night that you and your dad went to help your grandfather and uh, turned into a life-changing experience. It did indeed. Uh, my grandfather was an alcoholic. I think I'd have to say he was an alcoholic. He did work regularly. He worked in the textile mill. Uh, in the morning from 7 to 3, he would come home, he would eat dinner, then he would go out to his place where he met his buddies and drank. And one night, about, I don't know what time it was, probably 7.30 or 8 o'clock, someone knocked on our back door and told my father that his father was lying in a ditch beside the highway, uh, half drunk, and that we ought to go help him. So I was probably 11 years old or so, And my father said to me, it was rather cool outside. He said, get your coat. I want you to help me. We're going to go help grandfather. We walked up there. Surely enough, he was in the ditch. My father reached down and took his arm and helped him stand up. I got on the other side of him. And we walked him home. And all the time we were walking, he was telling us how he did not need our help. We walked him home and put him to bed. And uh, we went back to our house. My father did not say anything to me about alcohol. But that's the night that I decided I would not drink alcohol. It was a powerful decision that I made that I think saved me from getting involved in drugs and alcohol through all those teenage years. But it was that experience. You know, again, God was using his problem to teach me that here's something that you want to avoid. And I'm glad I learned that early because many people do not learn it early. Many teenagers, by the time they get to 18 or 19 years old, are already strung out on alcohol and drugs. So, you know, whatever happens in our lives, God intends to use it for good. And that's one of the things that I learned as a child. A question from Mike, who's responded to our Facebook post today. He says, Dr. Chapman, can you please comment about having your love language used against you, like words of affirmation versus words of criticism. 
Uh, any thoughts here for Mike? Yes. Whenever you use a person's, the opposite of a person's love language, and that's a good example, words of affirmation affirm, words of criticism, those words will hurt that person more than they would hurt another person because you're taking the thing that's most meaningful to them and you're doing the opposite. So physical touch, for example, there are many positive affirming touches that we can give another person depending on the relationship. But when you when you use physical touch in a negative way and you push people or hit people or shove people or that sort of thing, it is hurting them emotionally more than it would hurt someone else. And the same thing is true with gifts. If you give a child, for example, a gift for their birthday, and then as a means of discipline, when they disobey, you take the gift away from them, you say, you're not going to have that anymore because of what you did. I mean, that is severe punishment for that child. Whereas another child, it's fine. It didn't mean that much to them anyway. So, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a great question because if we understand this concept, we're hopefully we're going to be careful about how we use words and, and actions toward other people. If we know their love language, the last thing we want to do is to turn it around and use it in a negative way. Gary Chapman, let me just take you back to some of those challenging times in your development. In fact, as a young man, you really struggled with some problems around anger. And uh, there are a lot of angry people around, a lot of people challenged with that and wondering how they can come out of it. I wonder if we uh, just uh, reflect for a few moments on dealing with anger. And uh, of course, anger doesn't do any marriage any good. But what are your thoughts here? You know, Neil, I have to be honest. I didn't really have an anger problem until I got married. (laughs) And I didn't have a super problem with anger until I had a teenage son. Never forget the night when my son and I, he was probably 14 or 15, and we got into an argument, and I was yelling at him, and he was yelling at me, and we said some hateful things to each other. And in the middle of that, he walked out of the house, slammed the door, And when the door slammed, I woke up and I said, oh, God, what have I done? Yelling at my son. I thought I was further along than this. And I sat down and my wife came in and tried to console me. And she said, honey, he has he it was his fault. She said, I heard the whole thing. He started it. And he's got to learn how to respect you. But it's hard to console someone when you know you've done wrong. So she walked out of the room. I got on my knees and poured my heart out to God and just said, God, you know, I've got to have help. I've got to have help on how to handle anger. Eventually, my son walked back in, and I asked if he'd come and sit down, and he did. And I said, son, I want to apologize to you. No father should ever talk to a son the way I talk to you. And I said some hateful things. My my anger could control, and that's not the way I feel about you. I love you very much. And I want to ask you if you'll please forgive me. And he said to me, Dad, that was my fault. I should not have talked to you the way I did. And when I was walking up the street, I asked God to forgive me. And now I want to ask you to forgive me. And we hugged each other and we cried and we hugged each other and we cried. And eventually when we sat down, I said, Derek, why don't we try to learn how to talk our way through anger rather than yelling at each other? So the next time you're angry at me, what if you just say, Dad, I'm angry. Can we talk? 
and I'll sit down and listen to you, and you explain to me why you're angry, and I'll try to understand it. And then I'll do the same thing when I'm angry with you, and let's see if we can learn how to talk our way through anger. And that was a huge turning point in both of our lives. I was encouraged that night by the fact that he apologized to me because I knew someday he would probably be married and he would need to learn how to apologize because none of us are perfect. We don't have to be perfect to have good relationships, but we do have to deal effectively with our failures. And that means a willingness to apologize when we do wrong. So, yeah, that that was the beginning experience that led me years later to write a book on anger. It's uh, called Anger, you know, ha- Handling a Powerful Emotion in a Positive Way. So, And I think, you know, most, most people can use some help on anger. We don't understand anger. We think anger is, uh, so many people think anger is always sin. To feel angry is sin. Well, that's not true. I mean, the Bible says God is angry every day with the wicked. So it couldn't be a sin, you know, all the time. So I think we have two kinds of anger. We have righteous anger. We should be angry when we encounter wrong and injustice. But we also have a lot of selfish anger. We get angry when we don't get our way. And a lot of our anger falls in that category. So learning how to distinguish between the two and how to process them, really, really key issue. Huge lesson in life, learning how to handle anger. Earlier, you said your primary love language is those words of affirmation. So when you have this angry outburst event with your son, Derek, what was his love language? And did that play a role in trying to get that that issue resolved? Well, his love language is physical touch. Uh, so the, 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 you know, the, the argument part, I don't think it hurt him as much as it would have if, if words was his language. Now, obviously, it hurts. It doesn't matter you know, what your love language is. But his was physical touch. And I never pushed him or shoved him or hit him or you know, those kind of things, uh, for which I'm grateful. Because in anger, sometimes people, we do that sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the whole issue of anger is, is a huge thing. And I think here's another thing I, I learned from that. Children are more impacted by our model than they are by our words. And if we don't go back and apologize for our failures, and all of us fail from time to time, then, you know, the, the child, the child, there's a barrier between you and that child. And people have said to me, but if I apologize to my child, won't they lose respect for me? And I say, no, they gain respect for you. They already know that what you did was wrong, you know. But when you are willing to humble yourself and apologize to them and ask for their forgiveness, typically they will forgive you. It's often that we don't ask it. And so we just leave that emotional barrier between the two of us. Is there a ideal time span of letting things bubble along and uh, simmer along or uh, things getting worse, I think, probably day by day? But obviously the right timing is is going to be necessary to have the right outcome there because if everyone is still red hot, uh, it's not as easy yeah. to have that sort of uh, reconciliation opportunity, is it? Yeah, I, I encourage couples to call a timeout. If one, either of you realizes that you're about to get out of control, just call time out. You know, and if you agree on this beforehand, when you're both sane, you know, we're, we're going to call time out. That doesn't mean we're not going to discuss it. It's just we're not going to discuss it right now. Maybe take a walk around the block, cool off, 
and then come back and let's talk about it now that I've calmed down. Or maybe to say, let's talk about this tomorrow night. If it's late at night, let's talk about it tomorrow. And so you respect each other calling a timeout as a positive thing. Not that they're trying to ignore it or just you know go away from it, run away from it. No, no, no. They're just wanting to cool down so that they can come back and we can talk our way through it. Well, I'm asking this question on our Facebook post today. Do you think romantic relationships improve when each one knows their love language? And I've listed those love languages on that post today. Brenda has responded saying, absolutely, knowledge brings understanding and that in turn enriches our lives. What are your thoughts for Brenda and this idea of of taking the opportunities where you can to gain knowledge? Well, I do think the more knowledge we have of the other person and the more knowledge we have of communication patterns, the easier we're going to make life and easier we're going to learn how to work together as a couple. You know, listen, let's face it. Every couple is going to be different. We have a different history. We grew up in different families. We have different ways of processing things. It's not, not abnormal for couples to have conflicts, misunderstandings. But the problem is that we often don't learn how to listen empathetically to the other person. So we, we don't try to put ourselves in their shoes, look at the world through their eyes, so we can honestly say, well, you know, honey, now that I hear what you're saying, I can see how that makes sense. Now, now, let me share the way I was looking at it. And because you've listened to them and affirmed their thoughts, now they listen to you and affirm your thoughts. And then you can say, okay, now obviously we see this differently. So how can we solve the problem? And you spend your energy looking for a solution rather than spending your energy trying to win an argument. You know, if you win an argument and your spouse just gives up and walks away, you won the argument, but they lost it's no fun to live with a loser. So why would you create one? You know, we need to learn how to work our way through conflicts without arguing so that we're finding a solution rather than simply trying to win an argument. Gary, take us back to some of those early formation years for you, because having gone through your family upbringing, and you've shared some wonderful stories already around that, but uh, you've got a career as well as a family, uh, an educational journey that you're on, and so many of us have careers and uh, business and uh, education to worry about. Uh, Take us into your educational journey. Yeah, well, mine was very long. You know, I I don't know, 13 years, I guess. I got an undergraduate degree, I got two master's degrees, I got a PhD degree, and all of that was just step by step. I had not planned to do all of that. It was just one step after another. Uh, But here's what I learned in my educational, one of the things I learned in my educational journey, is that learning takes place not only in the classroom, but outside the classroom. And as students, whatever level we're on, we need to recognize that. We're going to learn some things in class, but we're going to learn some things outside of class. I'll give you just one example. I share several in the book. Uh, I had finished uh, my undergraduate work with a, with a BA, and uh, you know, I kind of had the attitude, I, I, I can do it, man. I'm a college grad. I can do it. you know. And I went to a summer training program sponsored by a group called The Navigators. It's a Christian training group for young people with a discipleship emphasis. It's in Colorado Springs in the U.S. It was a three-month training program, and it involved working eight hours in their headquarters. And 
then uh, having a small group every week and having a mentor that met with you once a week. And then we could attend conferences that were being held at their headquarters. So they assigned me to work in the print shop to run a folder that would take huge sheets of paper about a yard wide and fold it six or seven times into a little booklet that was called Beginning with Christ. So they gave me instructions on how to run this folder, you know, and how you got to get the pressure right on the rollers and all that. I thought, yeah, okay, I can do that. So I worked all day long, and I couldn't get it to come out right. So the next morning, they gave me another set of instructions and went through it again. I said, okay, I think I got it this time. All day long, I couldn't get it to work. This went on. That was Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, four days. And Friday, I'm having my time with God sitting on a rock in a dry moat. And I came to John 15, verse 5, where Jesus said, I'm the vine. You're the branches. You stay connected to me. You bear much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. And I broke down and wept. I said, oh, God, I can't even run a dumb folder without you. I said, please give me the ability to run that folder. And I went in, and that folder just went perfect all the rest of the summer. (laughs) Never forgotten that lesson. Without God, I can do nothing. And people say, yeah, well, you know we can do something. Listen, we wouldn't even be breathing without God, you know. But we're not going to, we can't do it on our own. And that that lesson, that, that it has to be God working in me and through me, or else I'm not going to be able to do it. You know, when I'm writing, I never sit down to write a chapter in a book or on anything without basically saying to God, Now, Lord, here I am. I cannot do this without you. So I'm asking you to give me a breath of your wisdom and a drop of your creativity so that I can do something worthwhile here for you. You know, if I didn't have that sense that without God I can do nothing, I might want to take it, take credit for the things that have happened in my life, you know, and the 50-plus books I've written and all of that. But there's, not, there's no place for pride or taking credit for something. If you really understand the truth, that without God, we can do nothing. I'm just glad I learned that lesson at that journey in my life, at that point in my life, rather than waiting, you know, years later. It does seem to be common in church life where you'll hear that affirmation, that encouragement to include God in whatever you're doing, whether it's your education or your career or you're in business, you're in business with God together. There's a tendency, though, for some to cast God aside if you're looking for your mate, if you're looking for a spouse, the idea that maybe God hasn't got the idea of uh, the one that I think is best looking and best suited for me. How do you think about including God in your choice of a mate? And perhaps there's even some stories around your own courtship with your wife, Carolyn. How do you describe including God in the idea of your relationships forming? I think it's extremely important. I remember in high school, I dated a young lady. I was in love with her. I had all those strong feelings. And when I went off to college, six weeks later, she wrote me a Dear John letter. You know, we're too far apart. You know, you're in Chicago. I'm in North Carolina. Well, I think we should go our separate ways. And I was brokenhearted. And I thought, what in the world is she talking about? I love her. You know, and I prayed, oh, God, change her mind, open the eyes of this gal and let her see truth. You know, God, you know, 
and, 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 and I tried to help God by writing a little letter to her, explaining to her, you know, how much I loved her. But it made no difference, man. She was through. And uh, years later, three years later, when I met my wife, and we started dating, and my wife happened to be this other girl's best girlfriend. <laughs> and I met her, and I thought, man, how did I miss her? You know, I'm glad God did not answer my earlier prayer. You know, because we would not have been good for each other, and God kept me from from my spouse. So I think putting this in God's hands, like we do everything else, you know, yes, we're going to ha- have the physical part and, and the intellectual part of choosing a, pa- a partner, but let's say be asking God for His wisdom as we move along. And if we are open to his wisdom, we're going to end up in a good place. Before you came up with the concept of the five love languages, you had an earlier set of questions that ultimately helped to improve your marriage. And you were, you were dealing with three questions. I wonder if you can let us in on, on the sort of important questions that you might ask to improve our marriages. Yeah, they, these three questions, I think, are really, really helpful. And I mentioned them earlier just briefly. And when I began to ask my wife these questions, it really did help our marriage. They're simple things. Honey, what can I do to help you? You know, in the early stage of a marriage, you don't know what you can do that would be helpful. It may be a simple thing of, you know, washing dishes or, you know, cleaning the toilet. But, but what, what can I do to help you? And then how can I make your life easier I mean, imagine how that makes you feel if somebody's saying to you on a, on a pretty regular basis, honey, what can I do to make your life easier? It communicates to them that they care about you. They, they don't want you to be overworked. You know, how can I help you? And then how can I be a better husband or how can I be a better wife? Again, you're opening yourself up for their suggestions on things you could do that would make you a better person. So those three questions are really, really significant questions. But you have to have a heart to be willing to respond to those questions, you know, I mean, they're giving you information. They can't give you motivation. And they and we certainly shouldn't try to force them to, to, to do the things that we're asking. We're just giving them information. If you really want to express love to me, if you really want to make my life easier, here's one thing that would be helpful. And when we, but when we ask those questions both ways, we are on the road to getting to understand what would be meaningful to the other person. And when we do those things, we are enhancing that sense of being loved and appreciated in the marriage. In your new book, you're taking us a little behind the scenes and you're telling personal stories. As your marriage developed, you mentioned your two children. Eventually, though, uh, there are some crises that we'll often face together in a marriage. And uh, crises came uh, when Carolyn was diagnosed with cancer. How did that all work out? You know, by this time, of course, we had a really wonderful relationship. But I'll never forget the morning. She said to me, honey, uh, sit down. i got something to tell you. She said, uh, yesterday afternoon, I got a call from the doctor, and I have uterine cancer, and we're going to have to do surgery and uh, and probably chemo. And uh, she said, I didn't tell you last night because I didn't want to interrupt your sleep. And I'm thinking, girl, my goodness, thinking about my sleep. I mean, and so I said to her, okay, Carolyn, I'm going to cancel all of my speaking engagements for the next year, and I'm going to be here with you, and I'm going to walk with you through this. And she said, now, Gary, listen to me. You're not going to cancel anything. God knew this was coming. God helped guide your schedule. You're going to do what's on your schedule. 
you'll be here when I need you. I believe that. And if you happen to be out of town and I need something, i got friends that will be here in five minutes. And I knew that was true. And that was her attitude, you know. So I said, well, honey, I'll pray about it. So I, I prayed about it. I thought, well, you know, I mean, what, she, what she's saying is true. And so I didn't cancel anything that year. But I was there at significant points, you know, in, in the whole process. But she went through that whole thing for a year, lost her hair, lost weight, couldn't eat, you know, the whole the whole journey. Many people are familiar with that. Of course, that was nine years ago, and she's she's been clear since then, you know, and she's doing great. Uh, which we're very, very grateful. But that that shows you her heart. You know, when God has both the husband's heart and the wife's heart, and what you both want is God's plans for each of your lives, and you're there to help each other. Uh, you're not there to demand each other, you know, do things. You're just you're there to do what's best and do what you believe God wants you to do. I mean, that's you can't beat that. I mean, that that's that's a marriage that's healthy and. It's what God intended, that we have this kind of loving, caring, understanding relationship with each other. Gary Chapman, I know listeners will appreciate hearing your candid thoughts, uh, telling some of those behind-the-scenes stories, uh, how you deal with those issues in your own marriage. And I do want to point listeners to get a hold of your latest book, Life Lessons and Love Languages, What I've Learned from My Unexpected Journey. Uh, Moody Publishers, uh, no doubt it's available. And as you said, you've written something like 50 books. Uh, The website to go to, 5lovelanguages.com. Or you can simply Google Five Love Languages and no doubt you'll find a a whole list of books written by Dr. Gary Chapman. Gary has had a a long, long career in family counselling. He's syndicated on radio programs on the air all around the United States. Our absolute privilege today to be talking to you from Australia. And as I understand it, Gary Chapman, You've never even been down under. So is this a is this a, a bucket list goal that you might have sometime? I'm sure you'd love our <laughs> our beaches, our mountains. Uh, we've got a wonderful I'm, nation I'm, down here. I'm sure I'm sure that I would. To be honest with you, I don't have a bucket list. My attitude is this, God, I want to accomplish what you have in my in mind for me. That's all I want. So if God wants me to come to Australia, I will, you know. <laughs> Uh, I have had a couple of invitations along the way, but it was never at a time that I was free, you know, to respond to, 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 at the time. But at any rate, uh, hopefully uh, the books can go where I can never go, and I can never go everywhere my books have gone. But uh, you know, uh, God, God has a way of using all of us with the gifts that He's given us if we just give them to Him. Well, Gary Chapman, thank you so much for taking some time to share not only your thoughts but your heart with us today. Uh, FiveLoveLanguages.com, our absolute privilege today, talking with Dr. Gary Chapman. Gary, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Neil. It was good chatting with you. Keep up the good work. I appreciate what you're doing. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.